Welcome to Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. You've tuned in to hear compelling conversations on hot topics and trends with law enforcement professionals and personalities from across Canada. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Blue Line, the podcast, a podcast created for and aimed at all members of law enforcement. I'm Brittany Schroeder, editor of Blue Line magazine. In today's episode, I'm joined by Stephanie Samuels and Jim Alvarez from Copline, and we're going to be talking about mental health and peer support options for members of law enforcement across North America. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. It's our honor to be on. I'm so excited for this conversation. And now jumping right in, Stephanie, this might be a bit of a big question to start off with, but I'd love to hear in your opinion just of the importance of law enforcement having access to mental health resources. So um, so I've been a clinician um, that works pretty much exclusively with law enforcement for the past 35 plus years. So the barriers to seeking treatment have been so significant. And I think the number one barrier um, has just been the stigma um, that officers you know, feel that if they go and they talk to somebody that, that everybody's going to know and that it's going to cost them their job. And, you know, uh, unlike any other uh, first responder, without, without their firearm, they cannot perform the duties of a police officer and they can't support their families. So it's it's been incredibly important to be able to have culturally competent therapists because when they finally do get in um, and and are willing to talk, the last thing they want to do is have to explain their their job um, that uh, that they want somebody who understands who's not uh, hyper vigilant themselves about the firearm and uh, and that that officers are able to talk about. Um, all the different stressors that that go on both on and off the job because you really can't many times separate out those two. So um, and confidentiality, you know, making sure that that the therapist you know doesn't answer to departments. And you know, I know for me, you know, my license is the most important thing. As as the officers need their firearms to perform their duties, I need a license so I can support my family too. Um, so so I think that's. Um, that that's been a huge, uh, huge issue. And, and when I founded Copline, um, it, it's really from the perspective of being a clinician, understanding what I could do and the connection that officers wanted um, and needed, as well as the understanding that when so many retired officers um, were leaving their careers and separating, and I'm sure that Jim can also address this, um, that that they were taking this wealth of knowledge with them. They were taking just you know years of being able to understand how to get through their worst day, um, of coping mechanisms, and they were leaving. You know, nobody misses the administrative BS. They don't miss the politics. They don't miss any of that. They miss each other. They miss the camaraderie. So being able to have a place where officers you know could connect to other officers was really important. And some of my guys were leaving the job untimely due to critical incidents, um, physical or psychological wounds, and being able to set up a um, a hotline so that with the proper training, the proper vetting, because not everybody can do this, um, that, that we can put in kind of another very confidential layer 
for officers to be able to call so that if they don't want to speak to a therapist or in between therapy appointments, I will tell you, I always tease everybody that I set up cop line as a self-serving line because I always say to my patients, listen, feel free to call Kaplan. You don't need to call me at 2.18 in the morning. <laughs> We've got a line for that. And they call. So um, so that's that's what I always tease people about. But it's just, you know, all of it has, I think we all work together um, and, and, and breaking down those barriers. But, but having people like, like Jim is just, it, it's how the line works. It, it's how it's how being able to reduce stigma begins. It's how we are able to break down those barriers. Now, going off of something that you just mentioned, um, and we've heard this word a lot, stigma. Um, throughout your years of you know doing this, like you said, you've had like a long career. Have you seen that stigma reduce or get smaller? Like, or is it <laughs> is it still pretty bad? So it, it's still pretty bad. <laughs> And the answer is yes. I've also seen it um, get better. Okay. I I think that the younger officers um, are more apt to be able to to utilize resources. I think social media has you know social media has been a double edged sword. Clearly, right. I think the positive part of social media is is the reduction in the stigma of, of officers and people being able to say that, that they did get help, that they've reached out and that that word's gotten out. And I think that the younger generation is just more savvy on apps and, and being able to utilize the resources that are out there um, for them. Of course. So delving more into the topic of mental health and kind of looking back at the last couple of years, um, just wondering what role COVID played for for those who are in law enforcement. Like, how did how did it affect the officers? So it's um, it's a really interesting question because when COVID first hit, I and mean, we certainly none of us knew what what this was and and what the long term um, what it was going to look like. But what we also knew is that law enforcement they are just geared for 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 that moment you know, they took the job knowing that there was an invisible enemy so whether that enemy hides behind a car whether they're in a building whether they're in a home whether it's a pandemic that that law enforcement knew that that was one of the the areas that they were going to need to deal with it became an isolating event as well. The greatest concern for the officers wasn't necessarily that they were going to die from COVID. Their greatest fear was that they were going to bring something home to their families and that that the, the loved ones, something would happen to them. So, you know, a lot of our guys ended up with, with unique rituals, you know, where you stay in the garage, you strip down, you, you know, you put your clothes immediately into washing machines and what have you. I had a couple of, of my guys that were exposed that ended up staying in hotels. So um, so that became difficult for them. Yeah. And on the lines, what was really interesting for us, because we did, we kind of were able to tap into a nation. And, um, and I've, I'm asked the question a lot is whether or not we saw an uptick in the calls. And the truth is, cops do very well in crisis so that we didn't see a huge uptick in calls. Um, it was slight, 
But what we did see was a shift in content is what they were now talking about was different. The uptick we saw was after the George Floyd riots because cops were prepared to deal with the invisible enemy. They were never prepared to become the enemy. Right. That was truly the shift that we saw um, on our lines. And that shift still exists um, for for all, all over you know the country and and in Canada. I mean, like I said, we we have been fielding calls and and we just um, we've been able to hear a lot of the struggles. So um, so COVID, I think, had less of an effect. Um, I think there is there is fear, like I said, more so having to do with families and um, and understanding that. Um, but but the not not in call volume. The shift really came after um, after society kind of shifted. Of course. And on another side of speaking about injuries, can you tell me about the roles that concussions, MTIs, repetitive head traumas, like the roles that those play with officers and their wellness. So, so I really appreciate you touching on that. So I will tell you that research is now just being done. We we are literally in the in the forefront of looking at those roles. So what we know has really been based on on what we've learned with the NFL. And the most recent research data came out literally last week. It was just published. And what they're finding is those low-level blasts, repetitive head trauma, the ones that are not showing with concussions, that the long-term effects of those are what actually causes this thing called CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, what we see with the NFL. What we now look at for law enforcement is we look at their history. So we know that that cops, many of them have played contact sports. Many of them were very active little boys and girls <laughs> and, you know, had gotten their bell rung because most, you know, I always tease, you know, that, that, that we're an adult population of, of, you know, of people that are, have been concussed since we were little because our parents said, you know, just shake it off. So we've been shaking off concussions since we were probably three um, but what we also know is the brain keeps score. So what we've assigned to, um, to behavioral problems, what we've, uh, what we've looked at under post-traumatic stress disorder is really the overlap of, of head injuries that nobody's ever looked at before. So what we found statistically, so we did a pilot uh, study out in Texas, and what we found of the people that had been diagnosed, the officers that had been diagnosed by a mental health professional with post-traumatic stress disorder, that over 83% of them had sustained five or more concussions, and 50% of them had sustained 15 or more concussions. Wow. In the NFL, three or more they start to talk about retiring you. So, so in my practice, 85% of my practice is now under the care of a neurologist. Wow. Because they had the history that I had never looked at. Right. But when they talk about concentration issues, sleep, insomnia is huge with post-concussion syndrome. But long-term, like the person might not have had a head injury or getting their bill rung in 15 years and you start seeing it. 
So what we've assigned to depression, anxiety, all of that, when you start studying head injuries are very much part of the lingering effects of a head injury. And that in the long run starts to change our trajectory of how we treat them. Because what we look at with, um, with memory issues, which a lot of times we attribute to PTSD, is that if, if it actually has to do with an underlying head injury, then you need to go on medications for, for memory, like Alzheimer's. So really being able to work closely with, um, with neurologists uh, and, and culturally competent doctors with concussions, because don't forget flashbangs are known as concussion grenades. That's what they are. Um, yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, how many of our SWAT team members, how many of our special units are exposed to this time and time again and never thought about it? Yeah. So it's really something. And, and when we talk about reducing the suicide rates, I truly, truly believe this is the key to reducing suicide. Because if we understand and factor in the comorbidity of all of those concussions, all of those low level blasts that we never counted, because we don't typically see this in any of our imaging, the scans just aren't good enough right now. So we think, well, if it's not there, but that's how Mike Webster, who was patient zero for the NFL, is that brain look completely intact. And when they opened him up, it still looked intact but you had a 50 year old man who had literally gone crazy. Yeah. And that's where they found the, the tau protein in a different place than they find it with Alzheimer's. So using that, we believe that the, the researchers who are involved are the same researchers that have been doing the NFL, that they believe the numbers are going to be the same percentage that we see of CTE in the NFL that they are going to find in law enforcement. And that will change. It will then change the protocol of, of how we handle concussions in, in police departments throughout the world. You know, once we understand this and therefore, you know, being able to reduce suicides by, we should be able to reduce them by 50%. They talked about reducing CTE by 50% by just reducing the contact um, in football trainings, in practices. If they reduce the hits by 50%, they believe that they will reduce CTE by 50%. Wow. That's, mm -hmm. and it's incredible, like how you just started off there, that the research is only really starting to be done now. Like that's, that kind of blew my mind a little bit. <laughs> So on um, on February 28th of this year, in 2023, the Brain Bank, which houses is the world's largest brain bank, just changed the inclusion criteria to include law enforcement. So therefore, any officer in the world that dies, whether it's, you know, by by, you know, by suicide or cancer or or what or old age. I mean, Frank Gifford died at 84. His brain was donated. They found CTE. That that you can call up the brain bank. They will they will harvest that brain. They will take care of all the expenses and they will then look at it. So that was a huge inclusion. That was a huge hurdle to get over that says the world's looking at this now. And here we are front and center.
So, and, and for us, it's been a blessing on Copline because our volunteers are now being trained to be able to ask our callers about whether or not, you know, they played contact sports, you know, and information on concussions, and then be able to not just refer them to those culturally competent therapists, but also to help them potentially get into neurologists to be able to look at this. So really fighting them with all the education and knowledge that we have. And that's, it's just, it's awesome for, for us to be able to do that on the scale that we can do it. So that's been, that's been really cool too. That's great. And this is kind of a perfect segue. I'm going to ask Jim, uh, can you give our, our listeners a brief introduction to you and then also uh, to Copline and the kind of calls that you guys typically handle? Okay. Yeah. Well, we've talked about the pandemic already. We talked about the protest. Uh, we know our officers are responding to the most horrific calls in modern day history with mass shootings. Um, so they're dealing with uh, mandatory deployments, forced overtime, sometimes canceled vacations. So the stresses that our officers are experiencing today are off the charts. So Copline is a crisis hotline. It's an international hotline in the USA and Canada. And we are answered all by retired police officers from across the nation. So this is the good thing about Copline. Stephanie mentioned the confidentiality. Officers that are dealing with the stigma issue and do not trust their family members or friends that don't understand them or the department to go to for some resources, they need an outlet. And if there's a leader that wants to be part of the uh, solution right now, they should provide their police officers with outside resources. And that's what we fall into the arena here. Um, 24-7 operation, a nonprofit. We are active listeners, no judgment. We don't give advice. We talk about options, alternatives. We want to be there for the officer at their best and worst moments. And uh, that's why we've been successful because of the confidentiality. An officer that calls Copline does not have to tell them, tell us their name, the department they work for, or even the state that they're in. So right off the bat, they feel the freedom to just say, you know what, this is what I'm dealing with. And do you have a minute? And we say, yes, we do. Minute or an hour, whatever it takes. We want to listen to what's going on in your life. So it's been very successful. We have a volunteer pool of 150 strong. We're glad we're on the air right now with you because we want to reach out to our Canadian brothers and sisters and see if anybody's interested. They can reach out to us via our website, copline.org. And we're interested in getting some folks to be part of our team as well, obviously, as being an outreach to all the agencies up north and let them know that there is somebody they can turn to and we're there all the time. So that's incredible. And what I would really want to know, the people who are calling in, are they searching for just someone to talk to, someone maybe to vent to, or are they searching for maybe more specific information for you guys, like looking for where can they go to find those supports? Or is there said, yes, you said the key word, and that's vent. So the majority of our calls are offices that are just, they want to just get something off their chest. Um, they're dealing with a variety of stressors, uh, whether it's anger management, whether it's depression, whether it's burnout, whether it's marital problems, um, alcohol, pain medication dependency. We take all types of calls all the way up to suicide ideology. So we're there for whatever they have that they're dealing with in their current situation. Uh, whether it's a minor issue or actually a full-blown crisis. And that's the key with Copline. We, we like it when officers call with small issues in their lives because the hopes are that when something does happen that's significant, 
whether it's a critical incident, whether it's an officer off shooting or some something that happens in their lives and maybe their personal lives, that they reach out for us and they talk to us, they call us. And if they're open to it and ready for it, we can refer them to vetted mental health professionals. I'm just wondering, because I know that there's probably some other um, numbers that people can call out there. So what makes Coplines Hotline different from other peer supports? Well, let's definitely answer the peer support angle, but also we're, we're not like any other hotline out there. Nobody's getting paid at Copline. These are officers that did their 25, 30, 35 years of service. They retired and they still feel the desire to give back to those still wearing the badge and serving our communities. So the buy-in is they want to be here to help some other officer out at the worst possible moment. So there's not any um, connection with uh, a paycheck, uh, if you would. Um, so it's, it's from the heart. And that's why our, our, our goal is to serve as many officers as we can. That's kind of just heartwarming, just knowing that there are so many people who want to just continue serving and helping those who are doing the same thing that they did for 30 plus years. Like that's, that's incredible. Um, speaking of your volunteers, how do you keep them all trained and up to date on latest information? Like, do you guys do training days? Do you send out material? Like, how do you guys facilitate that? So we have volunteers from about 26, 27 states in the USA. We want to get some in Canada as well. Um, we do monthly email blasts to everybody just to keep them up to date on what's going on in our organization. Um, if there's any new best practices that we gather from various law enforcement conferences, we push that out as well. Our founder director, Stephanie, has what's called calls with Steph frequently, and that's an opportunity for her to put out some new things that are going on in the mental health world. Uh, so we do that via Zoom. And then we have a training cadre. We have our lead instructor who's an LAPD police psychologist. We have a regional coordinator from the D.D. Hirsch Foundation, which is the oldest suicide prevention center in the nation. And of course, our founder and director. And they put on in-service training quarterly. So we want to keep everybody up to speed on what's going on because our folks have been retired for quite some time and we have to keep them in the loop of what's going on right now with the officers that are, are working the streets currently. So that's how we try and bring everybody back together and keep them in with what our organization is all about. Stephanie, Jim, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you think is really important for our law enforcement members who are listening that they really should know right now? Is, is there anything you'd like to, to add? I am. I'm going to jump on. Um, I think it's also important that um, that your listeners know that we don't take any state or federal funds that for us to remain um, and the integrity of these lines, when you said, you know, what's different, that's one of the things that's truly different is that, that we, we have felt that it is imperative for our confidentiality um, and to reduce the stigma and the barrier to seeking treatment because when you when you get government grants, the details of um, of the population that you're serving and um, and those callers becomes essential for the grant money. So we have stayed away from that, not having anything to do with our integrity, quite the quite the opposite, but knowing how important it is to be able to, to prevent any caller from from having that concern and that being the barrier, so that's been that's been huge uh, 
for us. And I, and, and when we talk about confidentiality, so one of the things when you ask about what's different, so particularly with peer support. So peer support typically has active officers. Um, peer support not only has active officers, but um, most of the time it's face-to-face, which also means that they know the person. Right. So this, this really isn't their peer. This is somebody who shared a career, but this isn't the person that they're working with. This isn't somebody in their department. This is somebody who... Um, chances are has had years of experience um, beyond theirs and not a similar necessarily experience. But there is a a connection because of that career. But confidentiality gets to remain intact. It gets to remain intact because you, as Jim said, you do not have to give your name. You do not have to give any identifying information. You are not going to be seen. We are never going to meet with you. That is against our bylaws. Um, And that if you call up and you talk about suicide, we do not breach confidentiality for that. So that if you are having your worst day and you just don't know how you're going to get through it, you do not have to worry about saying and talking about that worst day and thinking of of dying by suicide and having a knock on your door and now thinking my entire career is over with and everybody knows that our our uh, retired officers. So you know, Jim himself is is retired. You know, captain from LAPD. You know, did almost twenty eight years uh, and. And with inside of, I think it was about, it was less than a year, right, Jim, that, that he found Copline and, yes, uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and just really embraced it because it aligned with his needs and his mission to help officers in a way that makes sense. And, and being able to care for his brothers and sisters in that way and every volunteer that's answering these lines that they also have aligned with that mission has been imperative and and these guys are trained to deal with that suicidal caller and it is typically an officer that is calling that is crying that is drunk and has his or her firearm on their lap and and our callers are absolutely trained for that worst day and we are vigilant, vigilant about making sure that every one of our volunteers is able to be in the hole with them, bear witness to the pain, because a pain shared is a pain divided, and be able to help them get through. It's not over. People most of the time don't get over things, but they can get through them. And that's what our volunteers help them do and and are trained to be able to do that. Our training is 40 hours. You know, we always say, you know, anytime I vet the cops, I always say, them, remember how you used to go to training and it was supposed to be from eight to four. And then after lunch, they said, hey, just don't get into trouble. And you are gone. They're like, yeah. I'm like, that's not this training. <laughs> like we typically run over. <laughs> so, um, and and not everybody makes it through the training. And all of our volunteers pay their own way to get to the trainings. 
And just because they've paid their way doesn't mean that they end up answering these lines. Yeah. It is really, really a very stringent process. And that's another difference between peer support and what we do. Peer support is not trained the same way that our volunteers are trained. And, and not all of our volunteers, like I say, or wannabe volunteers end up on these lines. So very, very different, um, that, that whole process. So. Of course. Uh, and for me, yeah. yeah. So our officers are dealing with so many stressors today. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, but we know that they, they display courage daily by putting on that vest and getting out there, making it through the roll call room, making it through their shift. But at end of watch, they have to decide, who am I going to talk to? Um, and we want them to show the same courage they do suiting up to reach out and call cop line because we are there for them 24-7. We want to be that resource for them when they don't trust their immediate supervisor or management for whatever reasons that they're dealing with or they realize a family member is just not going to get it, they're going to talk to someone who's going to get it right off the bat. Someone who's been there, done that, may have been involved in similar situations as themselves. So we want to be that ear, and we want to have our flyers and posters at every police department in the nation and in Canada, because officers should have outlets. They do not have to go through the normal protocols that they've been going through in the past. So I think the most important things that I've heard are it's confidential. It is a great place for you to go if you need to talk to someone and it's there 24 seven set. Did I get all of it? <laughs> you did. And any your, <laughs> yeah. And any of your listeners if they want to visit our website at copline.org department heads or our leaders in your officer wellness employee assistance units want to, um, some free material. I will ship anything to them. We have stickers, we have flyers, we have decals, we have posters, just so that they can get the word out that there is somebody to call at 2.18 in the morning when nobody else is around. Stephanie, Jim, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode because, you know, you shared your expertise with our listeners and you've given them another option when they need that other option. I learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners did too. So thank you both again so much. Thank you. Uh, for everyone who tuned in, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Blue Line, the podcast. You can check us out on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also stay up to date on all of your Canadian policing news at blueline.ca. Until next time, stay safe and be well. Thank you for joining Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. <laughs>